0: Welcome to The Change Pod, where you come to learn about how change happens. My name is Mark Thompson from Oxford University. And I'm Mateusz Schulter from HEC Paris.
1: Today we talk about positive emotions, optimism, hope, happiness, and most of all, resilience. Why do we need these things right now in the current corona crisis? How can you learn feeling positive and optimistic under the current situation? How do you build your resilience? How can company and team leaders foster their employees' resilience with all the uncertainty and changes to come? These are questions addressed by positive psychology. Positive psychology is the study of the strength that enables us to thrive and lead meaningful and fulfilling lives. So later on, we will interview Ilona Bonimel, one of the leading positive psychologists in Europe, on her work on resilience, especially during the current crisis. But, Max, speaking of optimism and hope, are you a half-glass-full or half-glass-empty guy?
0: It depends uh, if it's the weekend (laughs) or during the week for me, I reckon. (laughs) 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 These things are never static, are they? And that's kind of one of the interesting things about this whole positive psychology uh, uh, approach, you know. How do you work with people who are, well, you know, have have different perceptions of the world? It's something that that we inevitably come on to discuss uh, further.
1: Yeah, I have to say, when when I first heard about positive psychology, and it's it's not new; it came out in the late '90s, but really became more established in academia and in organizations in the recent years. But when I first heard about it as a psychologist, I was a bit skeptical, as it implies that. Psychology in general is not positive, it's, it's not concerned with our well-being and so on. Also, why just focus on the positive aspects of our psyche? But then at the same time, I think positive psychologists have a point in that um, the, the basis especially of clinical psychology is a disease model, not a growth model. Mm. Traditionally focusing on, on mental illnesses and, and how we cure them. I mean, especially if you think about psychoanalysis, right? I mean, classic psychoanalysis is not really conveying a positive worldview if you think about it. <laughs> it focuses on trauma, anxiety, depression, defense mechanisms, basically the best you can hope for coming out of psychoanalysis to come to terms with your inner term which is great, of course, but it does not have this notion of growth mm. or flourishing or having a happy and meaningful life that is uh, so central in, in positive psychology.
0: But I, th- I think you're really hitting something here, which is the, uh, the scope for remedy and the scope for moving beyond these constraints. So the question that, was, uh, that inevitably comes up is, so, so how do I proceed, given that there are all these problems? how can I build a more positive tomorrow? How can I address them? What are the things that I can do? And I think this positive psychology movement really addresses that question about agency. How can I act? How can I have impact? And how can I change more positively and get fulfillment? And I think it, it also reflects a cultural change, no? I mean, I suppose if you put it in longer-term historical context, I mean, we're, we're seeing it sit alongside a much more individualist culture and individualism being the signature of modern Western societies. A sceptic might say, well, this is just all those kind of get get happy books that you find on a bookshelf in the airport. I mean, if you think about older communities, you know, you, you just grinned and bare, bore it and got on with life. You know, you you, you didn't kind of think about happiness, self-fulfillment, growth, because There was so much else you you had to deal with. But it is
1: interesting that you mentioned the um, self-help and don't worry, be happy books at the airport. Because positive psychologists really try their best to not be put into that corner. Positive psychology aims at providing this rigorous scientific evidence for its claims and theories. And it's deeply rooted in experimental psychology, in fact. Um, Some of their concepts like mindfulness, for example, now start to appear in top psychology and organizational behavior journals. And uh, by the way, in in this respect, it is different from uh, humanistic psychology. You know, humanistic psychology that came out of the 50s and had its peak in the 60s and 70s with people like uh, Maslow, we all know the Maslow pyramid, Carl Rogers, Eric Fromm, Edgar Schein. They all emphasized growth and self-actualization. Humanistic psychology to this day dominates the the uh, organizational development approach to change. But they rejected a very rigorous quantitative approach. They believed in a more you know applied research with qualitative methods, case studies. Which ultimately brought them this criticism of not being scientific. (laughs) The the rigorous experimental approach of of positive psychology has also to do with its founder, uh, Martik Seligman from the University of Pennsylvania, who is uh, an experimental psychologist. And I mean, I remember when uh, I studied psychology as a college student. He was well known for his work on learned helplessness. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, concept, but mm-hmm. it, was <laughs> it was really the opposite of positive, so to speak. What he basically did was giving rats and ducks in cages electroshocks that the animals couldn't control. And after some time doing this, the animals would not even try to avoid electroshocks, even when they could escape from the cage. And it showed that, you know, we can learn passivity, which was really important for understanding depression and so on. But at that time, I thought, I never want to be a psychologist like him. I mean, electrocuting animals all day long, <laughs> as important as the research might be. That was not really my, my uh, vision. But it is interesting, also from a personal change uh, perspective here, right, that um, in the late 90s, he became this main figure in advocating a positive psychology approach and um, that we need to focus on happiness, uh, we have to focus on growth and strength and uh, these positive aspects of uh, human life.
0: Mm. And I suppose it, it's it's burned a number of related fields of research. I'm thinking of Csikszentmihalyi on this notion of flow. Yes. Yeah. He did a lot of research really focused around...
1: I'm very, I'm very impressed that you could pronounce his name. I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> how long did you practice, Mark, for that?
0: I, I actually had a a, a student who, who did work on "Chick Sent Me High," and uh, she was Hungarian, so she told me. Oh, okay. She explained to me how to pronounce it. So that's how I know. But this concept of flow, as well, it was kind of uh, in, in the moment. How, do, what, how what is it that we you know uh, accounts for flow? which has a positive psychology uh, perspective as well. And also it's, it's interesting, I mean, my daughter is 12, and at her school they all learn Carol Dweck. It's all about positive mindset, growth mindset, and about how your mindset affects your learning. And in the education system as a whole, in the, in the school level, there's, there's a kind of massive wave of Carol Dweck-inspired interventions, programs etc cetera, etc cetera, all around growth mindset and learning which is which is interesting. So I you can see how it's it's getting embedded in lots of different areas. And of course there's all the work from the Michigan School with David Kooprider as well uh, which is much more applied in organizational settings but also is generating quite a lot of empirical work as well. Mm-hmm. It is interesting
1: to see how the positive psychology perspective is now more and more adapted by organizations uh, also helping to deal with uh, change challenges Mm. in teams, for example.
0: Yes, I mean, on the one hand, if you were to see it as part of the agenda about flourishing, growth, uh, human potential, and how organizations can provide a context and support for individuals to be their best selves at, at work or in the organizational setting. That's I think that's that's clearly is positive and, and to be welcomed. Of course, with these things, there's also there's also a line to be crossed at times as well, where an organization might impose its idea of what positive is on the individuals, and it becomes more of a cult, actually. Being positive about everything that we tell you. <laughs> yes. you know, so, you, you know, you, you 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 seem to be a bit negative today. I mean, why is that, Mark? <laughs> Are you not with the program? Do, do we have to be uh, reprogrammed again at our positive psychology units to be a, a better functioning human being? I mean, people can be upset for a range of different reasons and it's totally valid as right. well. So there is a potentially a dark side to this, uh, a dystopic view. Yes, yes.
1: But it is interesting that if I look at the traditional industrial organizational, uh, IO psychology and organizational behavior, I mean, as far as you would go is studying satisfaction, commitment, you would not touch happiness and how work could contribute to the happiness of life, right? And I think... That now companies and also individuals within companies are open to these questions and addressing these questions in an organizational setting shows kind of like a cultural shift toward more meaningfulness in organizations, more meaningfulness in in life in general, I guess.
0: It's also interesting that this idea of happiness has been uh, discovered by economists who are never generally associated with (laughs) Happiness. happiness at all. Because their, their view of human nature is generally, you know, reasonably reductive.
1: Not sure they would agree,
0: but okay. Um, so, but uh, a moral hazard, et cetera, et cetera, is ideas I and mean, people, you know, you, you have, you're always looking at the worst aspects of human behavior and how you design systems to take account of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of my colleagues here at Oxford are, are, are studying happiness as well. They're economists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have... Um, is it Jeffrey Sachs with his happiness studies? I think the French government actually introduced some happiness indicators as well, and uh, why the French were so depressed. And I think this idea of happiness is 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 moving much more into the um, political economy sphere, which is interesting, which is away from its uh, positive psychology roots. Yeah, but when it comes to change and also organizational
1: change, I think the role especially dealing with unpredictability, dealing with shocks to the system, disruptive change. I think this notion of resilience, seeing a growth opportunity in situations where you easily could despair, I think this is really a strength of of this approach. And obviously with our guests, we will talk about the implications of using the positive psychology framework and working within that framework in dealing with uh, the current crisis, COVID-19. Let me introduce our guest. We are really excited to have one of the most prominent experts in positive psychology with us. She wrote several academic papers on the topic and published several books, most notably Positive Psychology in a Nutshell, Positive Psychology Theory, Research and Applications and the Oxford Handbook of Happiness. She created her own consulting firm based in Paris called Positran, with an impressive number of international uh, corporations as well as educational institutions as her clients. Ilona Bonnewell, welcome to the ChangePod.
2: Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's really always very nice to see you both.
0: And it's lovely to see you too, Alona. Uh, Can we begin by looking at the COVID-19 crisis? It's uh, I mean, it's clearly the uh, issue of the day, and it's affecting not only individuals but also organizations. It's affecting nations. Its impact is, is global in, in, in many ways. And we'd like to explore what your current focus is on resilience in the context of COVID-19
2: my own work is focusing mainly at an individual level but i'm also working more on the team level so if we are talking at at the individual level what is really important is learning integrating using different resilience strategies whether these are cognitive strategies looking at situations as challenges rather than as negative dramatic situations so there is a lot to do with how do we perceive situations, how we read situations, how can we adjust our perceptions, how can we decatastrophize what's happening? So there is a lot of work also to be done at the emotional level as well, sort of for using different emotional strategies, whether this... Uh, being able to label what we feel, what we experience, whether these are, uh, for example, using physical exercise, uh, etc. to or mindfulness meditation to actually help yourself feel better. So there is a lot to do with emotional strategies. There's a lot of, also with, to do with um, sort of more behavioral strategies. And of course, it's, there's a lot about sense making, meaning making, how can I understand and make sense of what's happening to me right now, what's happening to our, us all? How can I integrate that into my whole new worldview?
1: I can imagine that it is really difficult right now to make sense of what's happening. So how, how do you do it? How do you help people with this?
2: What actually really helps is a quite, quite a short-term perspective. Why anything beyond September is completely not visible? Even meetings are not visible, not mentioning what's going to happen with the business, (laughs) what's going to happen with the market. You have enormous companies not knowing if they're going to open up in the next month, in the next two weeks. So, of course, this uh, long-term perspective is just simply non-existent. So it's more a question of what can we do in the short term, coming from this perspective, what can be done, what can I do? There are lots of things I can't do, there are lots of things I cannot predict what I can do. I can do something about myself or with myself. I can do something about my emotions. I can do something about how I think about this event. And I can do something about what I can possibly plan right now. So what can I do?
1: So that's interesting. So because it gives people back a sense of control
2: over their actions, right? Absolutely. And we do have a certain amount of control, even in the most uncontrollable circumstances. So if we, if we talk about my favorite author, Viktor Frankl, <laughs> So you probably know the man's search for meaning and the whole foundation of, uh, of meaning therapy, logotherapy. Uh, so, for, for example, he spoke uh, very famously that in any circumstances, there is something that we can control. What we can control is how we look at the situation, how we interpret the situation. So, So it's precisely that. It's taking back control and reclaiming this control around the area that is possible to control potentially. And I think uh, this is potentially a huge job for most of team leaders, company leaders, to actually redefine what is possible to control right now and assume this control for themselves and enable others to assume the same control.
1: Just a clarifying question. It seems that uh, the terms resilience, persistence, grid, are very often used interchangeably. So what is actually the difference among them?
2: Yes. Yes. I mean, when you look at the academic literature and when you look at the concept of resilience, you will find lots and lots of definitions of resilience, like three or four hundred. And they don't all agree with each other, obviously. But generally, to talk about resilience is our capacity to to be in control of our emotions and behavior in challenging circumstances and to be able to bounce back from different challenging and difficult events. And another sort of a distinctive feature, which kind of differentiates uh, resilience from stress management. It's also sort of our capacity to flourish, to function well in these difficult circumstances. So it's not just coping, but it's going beyond coping with what's happening. And some definitions, actually, persistence and grit would be a part of it. Sometimes we'd we'll see persistence perhaps as contributing to resilience as well. However, I think what is a distinctive feature for me, we talk about more this elastic quality of resilience. It's a lot about flexibility and adapting, which is not necessarily the case with persistence, which is just keeping going, even when it's really, really hard. <laughs> it's not re- it's not a resilient response. And actually, it's adaptability that becomes the primary notion. I really like this image of resilience as a bamboo, because there are lots of metaphors of resilience. And every time I teach resilience in um, in, in Asia, for example, I've tried lots and lots of resilience training in Japan and Singapore specifically, there's always this metaphor of bamboo that comes through. Why bamboo? Because that's something that's really flexible and sometimes would not not kind of grow straight, but would grow around and find a way around rather than keeping going in exactly the same straight line. Given that you work
0: quite intensely with your clients on a kind of one-to-one basis in small groups and teams, how do you do that in a technology-rich environment using Zoom, Skype, Microsoft Teams and others where you don't actually have the ability to read people visually or emotionally at the same level? How, how do you work in that context?
2: It's actually, I think there is a lot of work to be done on emotions at the moment. And this is actually working quite well online because what people seem to want and seem to look for is a space to be heard. Just. That acknowledgement that, yes, we do have complex emotions right now. These emotions may be quite conflicting. They may be quite disproportional for our usual sort of existence, even though they're probably not that disproportional with regard to what is actually happening. So there is a lot about listening for emotion, actually, and giving some space to share the emotions. So, so it's a lot about labeling emotions, because we know that if you label emotions, we just say, I'm feeling panicky, I'm stressed, I'm confused, perhaps, um, etc. If you just name what we're feeling, that's something that's very helpful. And we can actually suggest some very small little things to help us manage the emotion. When we're meeting over Zoom, we can just say, listen, before we start, let's just take a one-minute pause, just a little pause to centre, to centre our thoughts, to centre our feelings. That's an emotion management technique that can be used. We can start with good news. What are the good news today? What can we share? What is the best news? What are the best achievements? We can start on a high note, even though we know that we are going to, what we are going to discuss is kind of how do we handle the crisis. But what are the small victories that we can share before we start? <laughs> we can finish on a high, celebrating, saying thank you to somebody. So these are all emotion management techniques that we perhaps need to rely even more on during the current circumstances. So, so actually in, 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 in my work, there is, there is a lot of focus on emotion right now, and emotion becomes is becoming more acceptable as well in the business world just because right now all of us are going through an emotional roller coaster of what, in, in one way or another. So it's actually somehow in some way, there is a sort of <laughs> potential benefit that we can find from the situation in terms of that integrating the way we feel into how we work. And it's actually something that's becoming more acceptable. There is a lot more demand for programs on resilience right now because it actually helps to deal with emotions.
1: Your work on uh, emotions and resilience addresses the the immediate crisis that people go through. But some predict that we have to deal with these uh, traumatic experiences that people have for probably quite a long time. I know in positive psychology there's this notion of post-traumatic growth. Um, to what extent will post-traumatic growth become relevant in the aftermath of this pandemic, in, in your opinion?
2: Post-traumatic growth is a really, really important concept, and exactly, I think it's. Uh, I think for some people we're talking about resilience what, for what's happening right now. For some people we'll be talking much more about post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. means you are really experiencing a. Uh, something that's traumatic but then afterwards you're able to make sense of this experience and actually find some benefits in this experience benefits can be multiple some people find sort of a new philosophy of life some people realize that it's kind of sometimes the little things that really matter and important and some people realize that material things are not important etc so I, I think it is really really relevant right now and there are, I think probably three sort of things to take into account one is that Traumatic growth is not something that can be forced, but something that can be facilitated, but not too actively. So, for example, we know that when somebody used to be a victim of, let's say, a tragic event, let's say a tsunami or a volcano eruption or something like that, uh, used to send psychologists to help people to talk through to make sense of what happened. We actually know nowadays that talking through too early is not very productive. And actually, unless people really need to talk things through, they actually need some time to make sense themselves in order to go and move towards post-traumatic growth. So this sort of disclosure, premature disclosure, is not very productive for post-traumatic growth. What is important for post-traumatic growth, of course, is this flexibility of thinking that helps us to see a catastrophic event in some way as a challenge, as a challenge to be overcome, as something to to handle something to find a solution for. And also what's really important is that, um, that in making sense, that we move not towards something that's called a simulation of experience, but rather integration of experience. A simulation of experience is like a beautiful vase that's broken and then we try to sort of put the pieces back together and, and, and make sure that it's as similar to what it was, but of course it's not, because you can see the, the cracks all over the place integration of experience is sometimes taking the same sort of bits, uh, broken pieces of the vase, and, and creating something else with them, like, let's say, a beautiful mosaic in which uh, the cracks actually make perfect sense and contribute to the whole. So that moving towards the integration at both a personal and also somewhere organizational level, that what can actually facilitate this post-traumatic growth. In a sense, most companies are not going to work in the way they did. So it's about reinventing the companies, reinventing the way we work together, reinventing the business model, reinventing the offer. This is actually integration rather than assimilation. So moving towards integration step by step can actually facilitate post-traumatic growth.
0: I'm very intrigued by this notion of flourishing that you've just developed. And I'd like to explore with you two related issues here. One is clearly the individual is flourishing and needs to flourish and and so on. But then there's also the context within which they're trying to do that. And if we think most people are working in organisations, what do you think about the role of the organisation in developing a context where people can flourish? And also this relationship between the individual and the organisational flourishing. Are the two compatible? How does that
2: work? Of course, we can talk about resilience at an individual level, team level, and organizational level, because you can be very resilient as an individual, but if your industry is shut down, <laughs> and so for example, and and your your government is not paying you, for example, because many governments are not 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 contributing to the uh, to the salaries of people who are currently off for example so it's uh the, the the context is not necessarily there to be fully resilient so uh first of all so the first point i think we know relatively less about organizational resilience but i think the second point is yes that even in current conditions uh organization can still can still provide some conditions to enable individual resilience even within limited circumstances. And what are these conditions? These conditions, first of all, are the frank communication before anything else. Second condition is taking time with people. So the getting people laid off in a two minute uh, video message is perhaps something a little bit rapid because it doesn't allow the space because even if in current circumstances, some really difficult decision need to be made We still can accompany people in in, towards something like a positive transition. Uh, the The third condition is actually would be very much building on the relational fabric of the company, of the organisation. So bringing forward the, the, the social connections, even social virtual connections, building on those social emotional connections because what we do need in this moment is before anything else is support, support of others and especially for people who are currently isolated or very much cut off. This emotional support, social support is something that's absolutely necessary. So what I think we can talk about is some basic important conditions that organizations can potentially provide to help to help uh, sustain and develop organizational resilience.
1: That brings me back to the COVID-19 crisis, because many people see positive psychology as focusing on pleasure and increasing our hedonistic pleasure. But in fact, well-being and Positive psychology is a function of pleasure and purpose, which speaks to the meaningfulness that, that we just discussed. What's more difficult to achieve for our well-being in, in this crisis, the pleasure part or the purpose part?
2: Hmm. Actually, both. <laughs> Actually, both. Uh, uh, I think the purpose in terms of we know what we are doing in some way is easy. However, is what we are doing actually important are going to play any role in how the future is going to be shaped then you are starting to lose that meaningfulness potentially so for me I think both are important so taking the space and time for a bit of pleasure is important and it's very often most of the time it's actually about authorizing yourself to take some pleasure moments just you give us the very practical very sort of real-life example, I we just had the, um, a, a welcome back picnic for our company, just seven of us uh, gathering in a garden, obviously, at the respectable distance from each other. And uh, <laughs> and just having, taking a little bit of work time to relax in a, uh, in chairs in the garden and enjoy the sunshine. There's a little bit of wine, a glass of wine in the hand. And some of the people think, wow, I actually haven't done it in the past two months why didn't they do it? it is just because there is a lot of work pressure and when you're not focusing on work pleasure you you are focusing on the kids pressure because you need to handle them and on the spouse's pressure who think that you are working far too much and etc 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 so most of the time you end up yourself jumping from one thing to another and the last person to take care of is yourself so it's actually very often Bringing that pleasure discourse in this moment and say, well, actually, we do all need this little positive emotion moment. We need this little bit of a pleasure moment in order to regenerate. So this is important. Positive emotions, we know, build resilience and pleasure. Long time, we said pleasure and positive emotions have nothing to do together. But actually, there is a lot of research on pleasure demonstrating that's also very, very important for functioning. And of course, and of course, going back to purpose and meaning, absolutely, that's even more essential in, in the current crisis. So I think there is actually a lot of positive psychology that's relevant. Not everything. I think happiness at work as a discourse is going to wait for a while. However, yes, emotions, emotional regulation, resilience... Uh, uh, balanced engagement, sustainable performance, importance of social connection. These are the, the, really the, the topics uh, that positive psychology can, can focus on.
1: One of the tenets of positive psychology is that positive emotions are a means to an end. So if I'm more optimistic, it has all these positive effects on my health, my productivity, my well-being and so on. There's probably the the pessimistic German in me speaking, but can't this focus on positive emotions create some pressure, some stress that I have to feel positive all the time because otherwise bad things will happen to me?
2: Mm. Yes, I'm I'm personally uncomfortable with a very strong optimistic discourse as well. I think what I'm much more comfortable is with uh, flexible optimism, flexible being optimistic about things where it's possible. So it's basically... Being able to think flexibly in situation that also allows for the possibility of realistic optimism. I think under the current circumstances, this is sort of this sounds a little bit more appropriate. I would say we do know that people who have dispositional optimism uh, will function better in difficult circumstances, and well, if they do feel optimistic, that's great. They can continue feeling so. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> we we'll, we'll also know we we'll also know that uh, that actually uh, not all optimistic styles are necessarily very easy to develop. Uh, we also know that uh, some people are sort of have this realistic pessimism that keeps them going and contributes to their uh, overall productivity as well. We do know that. So for people who don't necessarily have this disposition of building optimism, it's really not about having to feel optimistic. It's much more about developing the flexibility of interpretation. So uh, yes, it is possible that the aviation industry will never recover, yet it is also possible that the effects will last only six months, etc. <laughs> so it's about, it's much more about flexible thinking and in the absence of predictive capacity right now, because I think nobody can predict what's going to happen with the aviation industry, for example, in six or 12. 12 months time right now so in absence of this certainty what we can have is a flexibility of the potential futures
0: i'm interested in how group dynamics may ship this optimism bias in practice so for example we do know that uh, groups quite often can conform there is group think so they may select in people who have an optimistic bias but in a sense, we do need people who are realistic pessimists to sort of balance that view. What are your thoughts
2: on that? There are actually some really good research papers that demonstrate that at a group level, we do really need some pessimists. So we do need people who are anxious or who are pessimistic for the group to function better. Why? Because precisely these are these people who will Pinpoint all the potential pitfalls in our current planning, and not let the overall optimists to take over. However, we do also need to have optimistic personalities in order to keep the energy high, in an order to keep going. <laughs> so, so the big contribution of optimists is actually keeping going and overall this overall positive group energy that is very important for organizational functioning, the contribution of pessimists is is actually error checking. We do know that pessimists are much better in errors. So you're talking to the converted. I'm probably I have to describe myself as a defensive as a defensive pessimist myself. And we do know and we do know from the literature that this defensive pessimists function as well as optimists overall in the long term. So there is a there is, there is, thing a space for. Everybody.
1: Yeah I think that that's a really important difference between individual and team level resilience right because at the group level different people can add up different roles like pessimists and optimists for the benefit of the group. but then obviously it becomes important, how they collaborate with each other to what extent they value each other to what extent they listen to each other no
2: exactly 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 and to answer to that question i think what's really important is um i mean i do a lot of work also on strengths and also how strengths contribute mm-hmm. to resilience so we have uh, we actually measure strengths now at team level and they can actually communicate on a team level to make sense of the strengths of one another. And it's precisely that combination of strengths that is more important for the team rather than we have sometimes this tendency in some teams to go for people and to select people who are like us. And it's actually this deliberate going against like us (laughs) to appreciating the importance of the difference that actually will contribute to the overall results much better
0: i really love the fact that you're bridging this scholar practitioner divide uh, which seems to bedevil a lot of uh, work in business schools and universities more generally how do you actually do that and how do you deal with the challenges of of working across those two domains
2: thank you that's a lovely question they work beautifully together actually i think uh, so beautifully that i they- wouldn't be able to imagine it otherwise nowadays because when I was just an academic because I started as an academic it's really the whole real life what was missing my first uh, feedback from my first base map students the master's in positive psychology uh, the first couple of chords they said that was great what you taught us that was fantastic it just what do we do with it now <laughs> it's like how do we actually apply it <laughs> And I, and I first thought that they just didn't get something like I taught you all the theory and all the all the information and all the research. Why don't you go there and apply it? And then I realized that it's just not that simple. <laughs> and there is a real art of application, of relevance, of understanding the need, of adjusting, of uh, of integrating the disciplines rather than just sticking to one solution or one discipline, et cetera. So for me, I think, the, the, the two really go hand in hand. It is by working with real organisations that you can see what is working, what people are reacting at, uh, what people consider as relevant, where the eyes actually light up in front of you when something is shared, etc., where the interventions have real consequences and real improvement in the real world. And, of course, at the same time, being able to, first of all, rely on the research, as your theoretical basis, and also, and also, in some organizations, test the consequences with research. Because, of course, as a practitioner, we would all like to believe that what we are doing is actually making a difference. But it's not always the case. So, also being able to test the interventions and to test the solutions with research that's also—that's that, that's a huge plus. So, thank you for this question. I mean, I think uh, in the ideal world, that would be great to have scholar-practitioners everywhere. <laughs>
1: Ilona, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you want to add?
2: Uh, no, I think, I think I'm good overall. I think uh, probably the conclusion for me, the, the importance of, of this resilience conversation is that we do know that resilience is something that can partially be developed and learned. We do know that right now, in these circumstances, resilience is definitely needed right now and it's needed for the possibly for the next 6, 12, 24 months to come when uh, basically because we have they're going to experience much more changes. Uh, I think re- resilience is something that needs to be developed both at an individual level and team level and organizational level and I think if this idea of a scholar and practitioner is actually upheld by many of us we are probably going to learn much more about the organizational resilience, real life organizational resilience over the next couple of years to come. So I think welcome to the journey.
0: Well, Alona, they're very positive words to finish on. And thank you so much for your time. We find the discussion incredibly intriguing and I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Okay. I mean, the, the positive psychology area has really, really grown strongly. It's a very well-organized field. They've got lots of d- journals now. They've got lots of handbooks, lots of publications. It's very big in the Academy of Management is in the psychology area. I'm kind of wondering, Matisse, I mean, you're a psychologist uh, yourself. I'm just wondering where, what your reflections were on on that this idea of uh, resilience. Yes, it's, I, I thought Ilona's
1: work, especially in the current crisis, is, is tremendously helpful and, and valuable for people, but also teams and organizations. And I guess at a, at a very practical level, I was really surprised by how well her work on resilience and emotions works online. I And mean, it is intense work, especially if you think about working with a whole team, dealing with all the group dynamics that are involved in that. And doing it online obviously opens a lot of doors to scaling this approach and, and having a wider reach.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, we are, we are they, they talk now about the new normal, which is, you know, full of crises. You know, we, we don't live in a crisis and then everything is kind of pretty laid back for another 10 or 15 years. We're going to have perpetual crises. That is the new normal. So I, I guess what you're saying is this approach, I mean, if you if you think of uh, famines or, if you think about regional conflicts, if you think about uh, tsunamis, if you think of where where a lot of people have had these traumatic experiences, uh, you can actually reach and help a lot of people through this online format, which is really quite powerful.
1: And also that organizations now request a lot of resilience trainings and that there's more of an openness to this approach. I mean, this, this is really interesting. I mean, you could say in a way, positive psychologists credo to see crises as an opportunity to grow. They do exactly that right now and grow.
0: But I suppose we also need to be aware that organizations can quite often look at, they want one tool to solve everything, don't they? They quite often want to... Yeah, I mean, that
1: that was one of my questions because we were talking about resilience at these three levels, right? I mean, individual level, team level, organizational level. It seems to me that... Ilona's work is mainly at the individual and the team level and especially developing the team level which I, I find very exciting there with the different roles. But then the question for me was also what does it look like really at the organizational level? Yeah, I think I think that's
0: a very it's a very interesting question. I think I think it takes on a different character when you go to the the level of the of the organization and there I'm thinking there's a increasing research now that's looking at organizations need to build in what's called redundancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so you can't have them stretched. You can't be focused too much just on efficiency all the time and cost reduction and making sure everything is very, very lean. You need to build in some redundancy. And you build in redundancy for a number of reasons. One is you need redundancy so you can learn. I mean, it's very interesting. I've I've tried to do research in the National Health Service, looking at this whole idea of integrated healthcare, where you bring health and social care together, but you're also bringing various disciplines together. And one of the things that struck me, uh, why why, why is it so difficult to do work in that area? Because when I was in healthcare organisations, very rarely the same people turned up to the meeting. And if they were in the (laughs) meeting, they were probably there for half of the meeting. And then if you asked them to do anything, nothing ever got done. And then I realized that the organization was so under-resourced, so stretched, Mm. there was no redundancy. Right. And you need redundancy in those institutions to be able to learn and adapt. And we've seen actually in the... um, COVID crisis in the UK, high lack of redundancy within the healthcare system there has led, generated lots of problems. And we see this in other healthcare systems as well, where austerity, cost reduction, uh, not filling posts, you know, we had a, over 100,000 nursing posts uh, absent in the UK, which clearly creates a lot of stress in the system. So resilience is also about having the resources or within the system to allow you to adapt to crises and also learn. So I think this concept of organizational resilience opens up quite a whole, quite a range of different issues.
1: Right, it will be interesting to see how this more individual psychological approach could be even combined with this more like resilience approach focusing on resources and redundancies there.
0: And it it's, if you remember towards the end of our discussion, I was exploring this idea of the context within which individual resilience can take place and how people can flourish and maybe mm-hmm. create meaningful work for themselves. And I think that's where the organizational resilience and the individual resilience kind of meet. So if you don't have redundancy and the opportunities for people to grow and learn, explore and adapt, if you if you don't provide the context within which they can sort of ex- have the ability to do that. I, I I think you're squeezing out that individual resilience capability. So the two are in my in my frame mutual. They, they, right. they, yes, it's it's interactive,
1: yeah. right? And it's a question of also responsibility. To what extent it's only the responsibility of the individual to take care of themselves and their well-being and their lives? What role do organizations have in that? to support the growth and uh, the flourishing of of individual well-being and finding that balance and finding that that responsibility, especially at the organizational level.
0: Mm. But it it, it goes wider than that because we were discussing, I think, at the start about this idea of uh, happiness at a a national level.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And I think, you know... Organization is one thing about having the context within which people can grow and develop and flourish, but also within the economy as a whole, the the the, the national, the, the state level as well. There's there's this idea of kind of like a social contract in many ways. What is the social contract? The context within which organization can embed their particular uh, obligations and commitments and mutual uh, agreements, and also the individual. And mm-hmm. situate their understandings within that as well. So I, th- I think it's nested at a at, uh, at multiple level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So that's it for today. We really enjoyed our conversation with Ilona Bonnival. and it will be interesting to see how the positive psychology approach will grow and which role it will play in organizational change and change in general in the
0: future. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on today's ChangePod and we look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to click on subscribe if you like this podcast. See you next time.